Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Amanda Joyce Hall. Today, we are truly honored to speak with literary and cultural performance studies scholar, professor, and one of my dearest mentors, Dr. Daphne Brooks, about her new book, Liner Notes for the Revolution, The Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. The title releases on February 23rd, 2021, and will be out with Harvard University Press. Dr. Brooks is a prolific scholar and the author of numerous books, articles, and essays. She is the William R. Kennan Jr. Professor of African American Studies at Yale University, as well as a professor of theater studies, American studies, and women, gender, and sexuality studies. Liner Notes for the Revolution is a spectacular book that takes readers on a journey through more than a century of Black sound. In writing alongside the sisters who cared for Black women's musicianship, Brooks cast contemporary performers as historians, acclaimed writers as sound theorists, collectors and record label originators as music critics, and fans as the archivists of the so-called Lost Blues Women. On each step of the journey, Brooks locates Black sound women as radical intellectuals, the creators of modernity, and the fierce leaders of a revolution in the making. We discuss this and more in our interview. Dr. Brooks, welcome to the show. Amanda Joyce Hall, thank you so much for that introduction and for having me today. Well, many congratulations on liner notes for the revolution. I'm so excited to discuss this book with you. So I will jump into our first question. Your new book focuses on the self-fashioning, the culture-defining, and the world-making of Black women intellectuals who are musicians, collectors, critics, and writers. In that spirit, might you share with our audiences insights about your own self-making and the broader composite intellectual, political, and spiritual journey that has brought you to this point? Such a beautiful and generous question. Thank you for it. So like all Gen Xers, I'm a post-civil rights baby, and I recognize that a, a really vibrant and complicated world of newness and sociocultural experimentation was bequeathed to me by my parents who escaped the Jim Crow South in 1950 and resettled in the San Francisco Bay Area, right? That is that is the Black Gen X narrative. Um, I was born in 1968, and I've written in the past about what it meant to grow up in Northern California, in Menlo Park, and, and in Palo Alto, but also, and this is crucial, um, deeply engaged with East Bay culture. My wonderful aunt and uncle, my aunt actually appears in photographs in the book, but um, they lived in Berkeley um, and Oakland. Um, and I was also very much engaged with being in San Francisco. So this is the 1970s and 80s when the dynamism and, um, and energy of Black power and multicultural feminisms and, of course, LGBTQ activism and bohemian life were everywhere, right? 
So there's a short piece that I wrote almost two decades ago as part of a project that was curated by the poet Joshua Clover called Critical Karaoke. And I can talk more about that if you like, but a Critical Karaoke in which I, I refer to this time and place in my life as the era of revolutionary petunias, right? To name check a classic poetry collection by Alice Walker. Um, she herself a fixture in the Bay Area um, by the 1980s as well. Um, so I have these references in that piece to um, it being my childhood being the time of machine gun toting newspaper heiresses, that being Patty Hearst, who was a fixture in Bay Area culture um, at that moment, the, the phenomenon of her kidnapping and, you know, whole other thing we could talk about. Um, but also I referenced Black Panther school breakfasts, which were a part of the, the culture, you know, it wasn't something that I had access to in, in Palo Alto, or as I call it, Shallow Alto, where I grew up and, and knew about them. Um, and then you have the queer nightlife fantasia um, of queer liberation and the afterlives of rock and roll, psychedelic bohemia, you know, through local figures like Sly and the Family Stone that are very much a part of the San Francisco music scene. So I soaked all of that up in my childhood. I was the youngest, as I often say, in a much older family. I sometimes describe myself as being the quote unquote menopause baby. My mom and dad weren't expecting me at all. Right. And so I arrived in a family with a brother who was 17 years older than me, um, graduating from high school on his way to college when I was born and a sister who was 10 years older than me and an absolute fixture in my early childhood, childhood for anyone who has an older sister, it's just like your superhero. Right. Um, so like many older sisters, and I, I think about this point a lot, actually, I think there's a piece that needs to be written about the, the culture keepers who are older sisters. So she was my, my kind of gateway drug, so to speak, to pop culture, especially because in her tween, in my tween and teen years, as I was just coming to consciousness about culture, there she was expressing her likes and her dislikes and her obsessions with the Jackson 5, with Soul Train, with Lady Sings the Blues and the Oscars and Barbara Streisand and even Barry Manilow. She'd be very angry at me for referencing the fact that she was a fan of Barry Manilow and the Fonz. And all that. But um, she went off to college at the height of the Black feminist literary renaissance. And um, as I pointed out in the acknowledgments to my first book, she brought home all of the heavyweights for me to read um, at probably way too early in age, but still. So Tony and Alice and Gloria Naylor. And so this was a defining moment for me in the way that I understood Black feminist thought, even though I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't quite grasp the heaviness of it. But it was it was something that I recognized as being important to my own life world, right? Um, and my own kind of um, access to aesthetic expression as being radical and life affirming. So the turning point in my own self-making strategies, and I know I'm taking you on an epic journey like the book here, Amanda, but I promise this all leads to, okay, yeah, I know. The turning point in my own self-making strategies, meaning the point at which I started to diverge from being wholly consumed by my sisters and even my parents' cultural interests, so my father's love of jazz and my mother's love of, say, Al Green, um, left an imprint on me as well, right? But it was when I found, my break was when I found my way across the radio dial away from KSOL, the landmark soul station in the Bay Area. And I started exploring rock music and responding to it, bands like The Police and The Clash, and then, of course, the boundary-breaking Majestic Prince, 
all spoke to these kind of rebellious energies that were brewing inside of me as this little menopause baby who nobody understood in the family, right? And, you know, the anthropologist Maureen Mann, who's a close interlocutor of mine, she's written a great book about this moment called The Right to Rock, The Moment for Black Gen Xers, the first generation of Black folk to grow up in the context of legislated racial equality, meaning that we were the ones who were experiencing widespread attempts, largely failed, as we know, to mount racial desegregation in schools. We the ones who were the beneficiaries of a cultural in- culture industry that saw itself as like attempting to diversify its representational aims from Sesame Street's wondrous multicultural universe to Norman Lear sitcoms, right? Good Times and the Jeffersons, from, of course, the breakthrough of Roots to the magnetic presence of the late great Cicely Tyson can go on and on, right? But we were the first generation to see ourselves represented so widely in pop culture and to be more directly regarded as the dominating forces of culture that Black folks have always been, we know. And I carried all of that with with me. But when I started listening to rock music, I had to go outside the home. So that's when I started making my way to the record store, to Tower Records in Los Altos, where I'd spend hours not only looking at album covers and considering which records to buy, but hanging out in their book department and reading rock music criticism and magazines like Rolling Stone. So I was such a creature of pop culture, but I was also a child of black feminist literature. And so I began kind of informally fusing those two worlds. And I read so much criticism early on. I dreamed of becoming one. And my parents bought me, they bought me a type writer, probably when I was 10 or 11. My mom was a grammar school teacher and a typing teacher, so I benefited from that. I'd write reviews of films right after I saw them, which drove my friends crazy. Like I'd say, oh, I can't talk to you about Raiders of Love the Lost Ark because I have to go home and write about it. It I was a nut, right? So I wanted to be a film critic first, but by high school, in the time of Prince and Madonna and the rock band The Police, I just went all in on dreaming of being a rock critic. And I held on to that love of literature and my professors and mentors, when I was an undergrad at Berkeley, encouraged me to think about getting a PhD. But I never, I never lost that dream. And I even chose Berkeley, not only because it was the land of our family's dreams, it's where my dad went to grad school, it's where my, my um, when my parents made it to the Bay Area, it's where my brother-in-law, my nephew also went. But I also chose Berkeley over Stanford, which is important as we're rivals to the end. Um, because of its centrality in the birth of rock music criticism, which is insane. Who chooses who chooses colleges because of that, right? Um, but I was obsessed with rock music criticism. Um, I was obsessed with it, and I also hated it because of its white masculinist biases. So I know that took you on a journey almost as long as the book, but that is that is how I kind of ended up at this place of writing about this kind of um, subject matter and became so engaged in these kinds of questions about cultural history in relation to pop music culture. Indeed, what a time to grow up in. I cannot, you know, I, I am envious for sure. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but um, so uh, jumping off of that, can you tell us how you came to write liner notes for the revolution, how you conceptualize the project as something far grander than a book, um, evident by the way that the manuscript has multiple valences as liner notes, but also as a record with sides A and sides B. Love to know more about that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, so for many years, the book 
was actually called Subterranean Blues, Black Women's Sound Modernity. And that was because I was so committed to trying to tell a story of how central Black women artists have been to the making of the modern. Um, It's important, and especially since this is a Black studies podcast and a a broad community interested in Black studies to note that there was a whole generation of Black studies scholarship on Afro-modernisms. Um, really dating back to the 1980s and led by the work of the late, great Cheryl Wall, um, who we lost last year so tragically. And of course, Houston Baker and, and Skip, Skip, Skip Gates, Henry Lewis Gates Jr. And I wanted to put more pressure, though, on thinking about how indispensable um, Black women musicians' aesthetics and um, performance strategies and expressive idioms were Um, how they were constitutive of this thing called the modern, quote unquote, um, a way of life encapsulated by radical shifts in time and space and communities. Stuart Hall reminds us of that. There's a footnote, and I went back to this after you had been floating these questions to me ahead of time, but there's a a footnote in the introduction of the book where I referenced this New York Times article from last summer, so summer of 2020, um, which covered new research revelations about the extent of the devastation with regards to what Black women endured in the catastrophe that was the Atlantic slave trade. I'm going to read this note or a portion of the note only because I've been circling back to it and trying to explain the capaciousness of the history that I'm trying to capture in the book. So I, I note in this, in this note, I think it's, I don't know which note it is, but it's in the introduction. It says, uh, a recent DNA study of the transatlantic slave trade has brought Horton Spiller's argument and that of Black feminist scholars of slavery into even sharper relief. Um, and here's the quote from the article. It's from the New York Times article from July 24, 2020. <clears throat> Excuse me. A new study uncovers the startling difference, quote, in the experience of men and women between regions in the Americas. So in the article, Um, The scientists calculated that enslaved women in the United States contributed to 1.5 times more to the modern day gene pool of people of African descent than enslaved men. In the Latin Caribbean, they contributed 13 times more. In Northern South America, they contributed 17 times more. What's more, says journalist Christine Keneally, um, she adds, um, in the United States, European men contributed three times more to the modern day gene pool of people of African descent than European women did. In the British Caribbean, they contributed 25 times more, end quote. The the title of that article is Large DNA Study Traces Violent History of American Slavery. (sighs) Moment to take that in, right? So I know, right? So a guiding principle in this work was always to try and answer the question, of why and how the descendants of this terrible, this wretched journey and transgenerational ordeal not only held the capacity still to make radical and life-affirming art, but also to consider the ways that their journey through terror from the hold of the ship, as Hartman and Sharp have reminded us, to the cotton field, to the kitchen, not only produced the modern world as we know it today, but created the conditions for them to innovate these profound expressive forms that encapsulate and speak back to and ultimately transform that condition. So 
many extraordinary black feminist uh, thinkers have, have meditated on this idea, have broken it open, right? The ways that the revolutionary aesthetics of say the blues women, you know, have transformed the ways that we understand our world and how we navigate that world from Hazel Carby to Daphne Duval Harrison to Angela Davis. I wanted to trace that radical, that interventionist expressive operation across the 19th, the 20th and the 21st centuries and into our present moment and by way of sound. And one of my most important interlocutors, great pioneering black feminist sound study scholar, Farrah Griffin, this year's the 20th anniversary of her groundbreaking, um, you know, history-making book on Billie Holiday. She was the one, though, in my world who famously said to me, that's a long-ass book. I'm paraphrasing. Bear would never say it. <laughs> she was like, that's really, you know, that's kind of a long thing, what you're trying to do here. And it turned out to be that. So eventually, I not only decided to divide up the project into multiple volumes, ideally a trilogy, but to change the name of the first volume to liner notes for the revolution, because I was interested in this idea of a genre that writes alongside music and tries to, you know, um, create a vibrant narrative that's in deep conversation with um, a particular recording, the liner notes to an album, right? I wanted to focus primarily on knowledge production about Black women's music, the role of the critic in defining taste and value in relation to Black women's music, and also the extent to which Black women musicians and critics and creatives, um, public intellectuals, how they generated their own counter-meaning and theories about Black women's sounds and Black historical memory more broadly. So there are, are, are ideally, there are two other standalone volumes, I'm happy to talk about them at some point, that, that come after liner notes, but I had to start, I had to start with the critics, right? I had to start with the problem of gatekeeping um, and, and clear a space to be able to then offer a counter history of black women's musicianship. Um, and then the other thing I'll just say about the concept of the side A side B thing, which I have to give all props um, to my creative editor, it's such a genius idea. And he's so fantastic. His name is Nate Young. And he stepped into working with me on streamlining the length of the book because it was so damn long um, early in the summer of 2020. So Nate, and it's still damn long, right? But um, but Nate really helped me to take a step away from this project that I've been working on for so long in order to see it better. And the two of us started to discuss the distinct narrative threads that were clear in the project and that needed their own space to breathe. So on the one hand, you have a part one that brings to the fore this under-theorized, wholly disregarded tradition of Black feminist cultural criticism as a long 20th century phenomenon and not just a crucial form of discourse that emerges out of the 1970s Black feminist renaissance moment. And as a phenomenon which took Black women's sound seriously as something more than fetish, exotic, marginal to the work of black male musicians. And then in part two, that part just kept growing and growing and growing. Um, and it set its sights on the, on the men who've been the gatekeepers of black women's sounds, as well as ideas about their sounds for much of the past century. But I wanted to end the book in this present moment in which groundbreaking, I keep using that word, path-breaking, revolutionary black feminist musicians, Cecile McCorin Salvant and Valerie June, Rihanna Giddens, are assuming the role of the public historian archivist, 
digging forgotten and repressed histories of black life. And of course, lemonade had to be the epilogue. Um, so Nate had, I know, right? So Nate had pitched to me side A and side B. And I really leaned into that idea of what in my day growing up with vinyl signaled the lead single on the 45 or lead tracks on the long playing album. And the B side has been the place where you'd find weirder, crunk ass, more experimental material, right? The material that isn't likely to get played on the radio, although it sometimes becomes a fluke phenomenon like Prince's Erotic City or Queen's We Will Rock You. Those were tracks that started out as B-sides. B-sides. So that's where I wanted to, I wanted to place not only the discussion about the white critics, but my own interest in speculative writing and thinking that can push the kinds of questions we have and conversations we have about black women's musicality and sonic life. And so the last thing I'll say about that is that Sadia Hartman, of course, of course, of course, I keep referencing her. She famously refers to this mode of writing of, of speculation in relation to black archival opacities as critical fabulation. That's her famous coinage and critical fabulation emerges as a form of kind of recourse in relation to the intellectual violence of white male criticism about black women's music in this book. And that's a phenomenon that everyone from Toni Morrison to visual artists like Carrie Mae Weems to the poet Jackie Kay, as well as the musicians themselves have, have innovated um, to manage this problem of white intellectual violence, which is something that we need to really speak about and call it out for what it is. For sure. Um, and I think that, uh, uh, you really invite us into into uh, this world. Um, as I was mentioning earlier, it, through the way that you're writing, you take you grab your reader's hand and you take us on this on this uh, long transporal journey. Um, so it is long, but it is really really amazing. <laughs> um, so I've gotten jokes from people about like, well, damn, this is. Longer than a promised land, Obama's. <laughs> like, there's no reason my book is longer than a promised land. That's only because of the footnotes. So, anyways, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, with that, uh, what was it like to actually uh, undertake the research and the writing for this project? Were there um, materials and artifacts that you encountered um, that surprised you? Were there any particular moments? or particular jam sessions that were particularly transcendent for you? I love those questions. Thank you, Amanda. Um, so to the question of researching, it was often thrilling. I, as an archive geek, I really, I mean, I think Fred Moden has called me that. He's called me and Brent Edwards, one of my other wonderful interlocutors. They're both like, you know, the superhero brothers of all things Black Studies, but you know, Brent and I really lead into archival studies in a way that Fred lovingly and really affectionately teases us about, you know, being archive geeks. And I really became obsessed with living for extended stretches in the archival papers of, of some of the key figures in this book who left behind just such extensive documentation of their intellectual lives, right? So the blues record label entrepreneur who's a, a white Jewish Upper West Side, um, you know, intellectual and act grassroots activist Rosetta Wright, um, the queer Black feminist genius playwright, public intellectual superhero Lorraine Hansberry, um, the again white Jewish New Yorker feminist rock critic Ellen Willis, 
um, jazz legends, Mary Lou Williams, Abby Lincoln, of course, Zora. Um, they all left behind these incredible archives. So I also had great 11th hour um, assistance from grad student assistants who made trips for me when I couldn't to, to Fisk University to visit the archive of the postbellum novelist and journalist and critic Pauline Hopkins papers. Um, shout out to Clara Wilson Hawken, my fantastic Yale student who visited um, Indiana University's archive of the Ebony music critic um, Phil Garland, her papers. Um, so the ephemera, ephemera in these archives was just so incredibly moving to me. And in the case of Hansberry, whose papers, of course, are housed at the Schomburg Library, just boxes and boxes and boxes of her life's work. You have things like the get well cards from luminaries addressed to her when she became gravely ill, including her dear friend, Nina Simone, um, but also the everyday notes that she made for herself, some of which are quite famous and became part of the exhibit on her queerness, at the Brooklyn Museum in the early 2020s. So like her likes and dislikes list, I like Eartha Kitt, um, which is, you know, documentation of sensuous queer fandom. I mean, she really liked Eartha Kitt. Um, I, you know, I don't like lists. What happened to Sydney Poitier is included on her I don't like list in the moment of, of Raisin in the Sun fame. Is, you know, take a drink of water here. <clears throat> so Hansberry, she kept notes about culture and her own writing process her own intellectual ambitions. And she took it upon herself to address everything in her notes from how a Marxist publication like the daily worker produced in her mind, sexist perspectives on women in film to say championing um, William Dufty's 1956 Billie Holiday book, Lady Sings the Blues. Um, she also kept tabs on racism and misogyny in the media so seeing the intimacy of her intellectual process in the archive was was just stunning and galvanizing, right? Um, yeah, this was true of the case, too, of Rosetta Wrights as well. And she left over 60 boxes of material that she left. Um, she left it behind, um, and it's now housed at Duke University. And the point that I make in the book is that Wrights was this clearly meticulous and beautifully obsessive kind of collector and critic. Um, she held on to her notes, and I think that's an important kind of point to really flag to all of our young scholars who might be listening to this program. Um, she held on to a documentation of her brainstorming, her stylistic experimentation as a critic, um, who was really trying to work out methods with regards to how to approach writing about and theorizing Black women's musical genius with just deep, deep care and rigor. And so in the book I discuss these traces of Wright's experimentation in the clippings that she collected and she seemingly used them to develop her, her critical voice. Right. So she often turned to time magazine art criticism about visual artists like Francis Bacon, and she would lift and scramble and rearrange the language of these art reviews. She would translate them into this kind of critical discourse that she would then apply to her own studies of Dinah Washington and Ella Fitzgerald and other luminaries. And it's just a fascinating thing to see that process, you know, the anatomy of a critical process in an archive, right? Um, yeah, I will say with Hurston and really with Hopkins too, 
I was taken by the archival traces of how hard it was for them to do their work, what they faced in the way of racism and sexism and social peril as Black women, women creative intellectuals. Um, and also at the same time, their undying determination to do their work, how passionate they were about doing their work, how urgent their own labor was to them, how they protected it jealously and fearlessly, right? Um, so that was just moving and inspiring. And then um, to, the, to the question of transcendent jam session, right? Two quick examples I'll, I'll give, right? One is just the process of archival research itself. So when I was beginning my work in Hansberry's archive, it literally intersected with the passing of Aretha Franklin. And the Schomburg staff was so kind to me, they actually gave me a space in the library, a conference room where I ended up doing press most of the day on air, on the radio, um, about Aretha. And then the coupling of that moment, right, and that mammoth loss with the privilege of being able to spend time traveling through the traces of the life of another black feminist artistic genius, in this case, right, Hansberry, it weighed on me. And I really felt, I felt the ethical urgency, right, of trying to account for the richness and the capaciousness of the lives of each of the figures in my book, because I recognized and I felt even more profoundly what it means to lose them. And, and loss is a big trope in this book as well, right? Um the session that I think of is almost like trance writing was when I went back to my alma mater to UC Berkeley to give a talk in what was called the black room, a black studies lecture series organized by the majestic and brilliant scholars, Lee Rayford and Nadia Ellis and Derek Scott. Um, and this is when I began writing about the white male critics and collectors who were obsessed with the little known blues women, musicians, Gishi and Alvi. And that was a kind of writing that just came, came from the soul and the gut. And it, it flowed organically from a place of real intense intellectual and sociopolitical and ethical conviction and outrage about how Black women artists have been historically treated in culture writing. So there's a kind of rage-infused intimacy and urgency to that thread of the writing in the book. And it ended up anchoring side B of the book, um, that tone and that passion. Mm -hmm. that's uh that's what we i think uh that we that's kind of the space that we strive to to get into i think many of us uh black students of black studies um to locate uh that yeah just that passion and and the viscerality uh of um of you know, based on the work that we're doing and the and the people that we are trying to um, honor and uplift through um, our critical, yeah, like our critical gaze. Yes, um, the on, viscerality. On the yeah, you know, mm -hmm. and and academia, you know, as it's been structured around white supremacist thought and ideas, it's all about repressing that viscerality, especially if it's black black viscerality, right? And so we we are we are taught and socialized in academia into a kind of you know repression of our feelings and you know the fact that the work that we do is about life and death you know and it comes it comes from the history of life and death and to be able to now reinterpolate that feeling um, and that sense of urgency into how we go about doing our work 
I think is absolutely necessary, not only because it gives you a much more accurate and vivid, and I keep using this word, but capacious sense of Black life in academia and outside of it, right? But it also, I think, challenges us then to have to be more ethically in line with our intellectual pursuits if we can feel it, you know? And I wanted, I wanted to write really close to that feeling, as close as I could get to that feeling. Right. Uh, it remind, uh, it actually reminds me of uh, what we're talking about is uh, Lauren Hill's MTV Unplugged um, and her her meditation on repression um, and and making the argument that uh, that like middle class white culture that we are all. You know, I mean, and it's intense in the academy, um, but everywhere in, you know, the U.S. and many places in the world um, just leads to tremendous repression. Um, so I'm just um, encouraged by this, by this, you know, conversation that we're having about getting out of it. Uh, that's, yeah. I think that's what she said. She's like, we have to get out. She's like, we have yes. to get out. <laughs> yes. You know, so. And that's, you know, I'm glad you brought her up. I mean, she comes up in the book um, and mm-hmm. our, our Yale alum, form, Yale alum colleague, my, one of my former students, the great Lamar Bruce, who, who's written about, you know, the, the ways in which you've scripted as mad and her pathologies and all that, you know, the troubling risk involved in, taking that kind of leap to be open, you know, to, to feel it all. And I, that's a, that's a, that's a white indie kind of line from the the musician Feist to my door. She has a song called I feel it all, but to, but to do that, you know, we risk being pathologized. Right. And, and, you know, as we know, as black feminists being called crazy. And so I think that, you know, the pedagogy for me as a scholar and being able to mentor my students and how to do this is to be able to, to I, I think, and I'm, I'm really, I'm just saying this for the first time, but to be able to, to bequeath to anybody who is committed to this kind of struggle and thought, to being able to hold together both the precision and rigor of what, you know, academic analytic criticism has given to us, but to at the same time and infuse it with that feeling. And we have all sorts of great models of that, you know, from Tony Warson to, to Cydia Hartman to my, my late great mentor, Barbara Christian um, and, and Valerie Smith and, you know, the whole generations of black feminists, but it is, it is a dance to be able to hold that all together. Yeah. It is. And, and one that I most certainly uh, welcome and look forward to continuing to engage in. Um, so when, Let's just build on that. One of your main arguments in the book is to present uh, the magnitude and the consequence of Black women's sonic labors as Black feminist intellectualism as a particular type of canon um, that contributes to the larger Black intellectual uh, feminist canon. Can you tell us more about this and how are you and how you are theorizing the labor of um, sisters like Pauline Hopkins all the way to Janelle Monet um, and the ways that they are articulating a black feminist modernity and a particular type of revolutionary world making? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you for that question. Um, so labor was a concept that I wanted to bring to the fore of this project about black feminist culture. At one point, the subtitle included the word labor. And one of the recurring themes in the book 
and you see it even in some of the captions for images in the book, is the idea that intellectual work, that writing and thinking and dreaming and conversing is a form of critical and life-affirming labor for Black women. And also, right, that Black women's sonic artistry is labor, right? Not merely an object to be used and enjoyed by others. I'm thinking about the twin, no, it's the 30th anniversary now of, of Whitney Houston's national anthem performance that just got replayed at the Super Bowl this past weekend, right? Um, and is often fetishized as being so pleasurable and also, you know, became taken up as kind of a jingoist kind of, you know, expression of, uh, neocon patriotism. But um, so instead of thinking about Black women's sonic artistry as this object to be enjoyed by others, it can be, you know, um, the center of lifelong craft and, and training or, or representative of lifelong craft and training. So with Hopkins, I want to try and shine a light on how her fiction writing and journalism encapsulates that labor. It's a manifestation of that labor. I've long been obsessed with Pauline Hopkins, going back to my senior thesis at Berkeley on Black women journalists who were also sentimental novelists. And then her work is the last chapter in my first academic book, Bodies in Descent. And I kind of really, I thought of sort of, you know, her being the portal between that book and this book. Um, and with Janelle Monet, just keep skip to the, to the, to the next century, but um, I wanted to pivot a bit from all the wonderful cultural criticism on her on her performance repertoire by a number of scholars at this point, right? I call her in the book "Mana from Heaven" for Black Studies scholars. Um, so you know, and that's great. I mean, we should be having you know there should be much critical discourse about Black women popular musicians. We have this whole generations, a couple of generations now of, you know, bodies of work about Dylan and then to a lesser extent, but still Bruce Springsteen, who I have a lot of issues with, but that's another for another conversation. But at any rate, you know, we should have generations of criticism on, on, on all of these artists. Right. But I want to kind of pivot away from just thinking about her performances and recordings to paying attention to how expansive her intellectual universe is. And, how we see that, especially in the liner notes for albums, which receive scant attention from critics. I mean, some of this is because the liner notes form, as I talk about in the book, is is a bit of an antiquated, I wouldn't say obsolete form, but it's certainly um, not as prominent as it was when, of course, we were in the era of vinyl and, you know, you would bring home your album and you would pull out the sleeve and maybe the notes would be on the sleeve or they'd be included in a booklet with the album or on the back of the album, as is the case of Rosetta Wright's liner notes that she wrote for her reissues of classic blues women's music. So in the digital age, um, Janelle Monet and her team of Wonderland Arts Associates based in Atlanta really started to devise ways of thinking creatively and discursively. So writing these kinds of almost um, verse-like experimental poetry meditations on the songs including included in our albums. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to be in conversation in the past with members of, of that, you know, um, ensemble of hers, creative ensemble, Chuck Lightning and Nate Wonder. They're both Morehouse alums and Black study scholars who remain dynamically committed to to collaborating with Janelle Monet and developing this very broad and very deep Black feminist, queer, Afrofuturist intellectual universe in which she situates her sound and performances. 
And so I just kind of wanted to be able to think about, you know, Black women's musical work as extending beyond the moment of sound making itself and into all of these other cultural formations. And that's also, you know, I'm deeply influenced by the late great music scholar, um, Christopher Small, who wrote this pathbreaking book called Musicking, in which he theorizes this idea of musicking as being about all of the different aspects of what music bequeaths to us in the world socially and culturally, um, you know, from not just dance, but to, um, you know, the different kinds of everyday ways in which we incorporate music into our worlds. And so I wanted to be able to think about what musicking meant to these Black feminist artists and how they promote musicking in their work. Mm -hmm. Well, let's think about that um, with uh, Zora Neale Hurston, the illustrious novelist, anthropologist, and playwright. Um, How does she help us move towards a theory of Black sound? Mm. Well, she was our every woman, right? Our polymath, Mm -hmm. like Pauline Hopkins before her, right? As you mentioned, she's she was a novelist, anthropologist. She's a playwright. She was also a performer, um, a dramatist, a recorder of Black culture in the context of all of her gifts and talents. In fact, we can kind of think about all of those different kinds of sociocultural roles that she played and hats that she wore as being um, acts of um, radical recording of Black culture, right, and documentation of Black culture. Um, not enough people know about Sora's field recordings, her actual field recordings in which she went out into the field in Florida and other parts of the global South as well. And, um, you know, collected the songs and the music of vernacular peoples, um, vernacular black peoples in the, in the, in the black diaspora. So she would collect these songs. And as she called it famously, I would get in the crowd with them and learn these songs And one of the innovations on her part was not only to, you know, become the godmother of, you know, black anthropological studies, um, but to use sound and to use um, the performance of um, sonic life through her own body and through her own, you know, ferociously amateur, you know, strategies of vocalizing. She was not a trained singer, as, as we all know. And that was important to her, right, to kind of to be able to, to recreate, um, you know, through her own body and through her own expressive practices, um, the sounds of, of black life as it sustained itself in the universe. So she would, she would perform these songs, um, for the WPA's, um, project of, um, traveling across the country in the context of the great depression and trying to, to document what, um, the WPA team saw as these, uh, you know, these these cultures that were folk cultures that were on the precipice of presumably quote unquote disappearing. So she was central to trying to be the the node between the point of disappearance, which Jean Toomer, of course, famously was kind of romantically writing about in Kane and other Afro modernists. She wanted to be that point of documenting um, what she saw as you know, uh, being a black culture that was in danger of, of, of dying out completely. And so as a radical, you know, sound archivist, um, she is, she's kind of our, 
you know, she's, she, she is our living archive. Right. Um, so I'm really grateful to Glenda Carpio and Werner Solers. They were the ones who first brought that Zora material to, to my attention in, in the early 2010s. And it's, it's lived on in the Smithsonian website for some time. Anyone can listen to those tracks. Um, what I wanted to do in the book was also to place these recordings in conversation with her culture writing, um, with, you know, some of her most famous essays, characteristics of Negro expression, which the late Dwight Conkergood performance studies scholar calls the first black performance studies essay, um, her spirituals and neo spirituals essay, which was really like her, you know, throwing lots of shade on the idea of the concert hall, um, Negro spirituals performed by the likes of the Fist Jubilee singers and um, arranged by figures like Hall Johnson and others. She wanted to really mark the distinction between, you know, black music that was performed for the white masses versus black music that uh, was performed intimately in vernacular communities. Um, And the fact that she was kind of writing as she was also recording and, and sometimes before and after um, became another way of thinking about, you know, the resonances of the liner note genre as Zora Neale Hurston was revolutionizing, you know, that kind of a concept outside of the popular music recording industry. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it it was a fascinating read, um, again, in search of the intimacy, uh, as you, as you just mentioned, um, the, the vernacular recordings uh, as it's, yeah, as a searching for a type of, yeah, intimacy uh, that's uh, not front and center in the industry. Um, So now um, I want us to turn to the industry, actually. Um, uh, (laughs) um, That's a nice transition. That's a nice transition. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) What is the uh, feminist intellectual counter history of pop music culture. And what does Rosetta Reese tell us about it? Um, How do you see the interplay between the development of black women's sonic cultures, kind of what we talked about just now, um, and the broader landscape of critics who sought to challenge the white patriarchal hegemony in pop music? Yeah, that's a great question. I love that. I love that segue. Like I said, I mean, rights is a really, um, she's an important person to think about in re- in relation to the recording industry because she reminds us of ha- of the of the of the extent to which black women's sounds were always facing the perils of precarity in the recording industry from you know black women not being able to record blues music until Mamie Smith broke through in 1920 or um you know, really African-Americans in general were not able to make recordings, save for the great vaudevillian Burt Williams in 1919, made the first recording for a music label. And then Mamie Smith breaks through with the first blues recording in 1920. Um, before that, with the nascent recording industry that Thomas Edison played a huge hand in, as well as other figures, um, the presumption among, you know, white owned and run record labels was that, um, there was no one. There was no. There was no demographic and constituency within Black communities um, that would be interested in buying Black recordings or recordings made by African American musicians. 
Um, and two black musicians were too risky to, to bring into the studio and, and, and make recordings. And so you had the first decade of the 20th century of white musicians, um, recording the blues, you know, that, that they overheard either, you know, speakeasies or, you know, from the people who employed them or, um, you know, who worked alongside them in the entertainment industry. Um, this is all to say that, you know, you have that breakthrough in 1920 with Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues, which becomes, you know, opens up the era of the classic blues women's um, explosion, Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey and, you know, all of these other genius veterans who'd been working the show circuit for years before they could make recordings. But then just as, as easily as they could appear and dominate the scene, they, they, they disappear. They become um, superseded by um, black male musicians um, who you know, geniuses in and of themselves, um, guitar singing um, heroes like Blind Lemon Jefferson and Robert Robert Johnson, who are fetishized by, once again, the villains in my story, for the most part, white male critics. Um, and, you know, this goes on for generations. I mean, I'm just keeping it real, right? So, so this goes on for generations. And Rosetta Wrights is such an interesting figure since she she loved the blues. She really came to being deeply passionate about the blues when she, a second wave feminist, you know, activist divorcee was writing a book about menopause in the late seventies and started listening to a lot of Bessie Smith as she liked to tell the story. And then she discovered that a lot of those recordings were out of print. And so, you know, this is a real DIY story of somebody who, you know, decided to face off with the dominant recording industry and just start her own independent uh, recording label, Rosetta Records, and put that music, you know, Ida Cox, Ethel Waters, um, uh, you know, of course, of course, Bessie and Ma, you know, the entire range, Alberta Hunter, the entire range of luminaries, pathbreaking geniuses of classic women's blues, she puts them back in the, into print along with, of course, or, or back into circulation um, along with, of course, with um, uh, the jazz luminaries like Ella and, um, and uh, Dinah Washington in particular. Rosetta writes also though, decided that in reissuing those records that she was going to create the cultural discourse, the intellectual discourse in which to care for these women who'd, who'd gone uncared for, right, by the the music intellectual elite. And so she wrote these just radical second wave feminist, you know, sex positive um, narratives about the music and included them with the recordings. And so for that, um, she is just, you know, one of the superheroes of radical intimacy and care that I wanted to be, bring to the forefront of the story that I'm telling in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so it's so fitting that you mentioned uh, the villainy too of uh, the like <laughs> white men music execs because just the just the other night I was rewatching uh, Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon <laughs> and uh, the, oh my the God, music exec. <laughs> and the the character I, I mean just the the character of the the rapacious white uh, man music executive. Um, who's like kidnapping, you know, the black singer and DJ uh, woman um, and, and causing all kinds of trouble um, is, yeah, it was just so spot on in terms of the archetype. <laughs> it's 
true. I mean, I want to be really careful with that, obviously. I mean, number one, because Barry Gordy is a complicated figure. So, you know, black men have their own narratives of hegemony and patriarchy within the industry, even as they face systemic, you know, subjugation and exploitation as well. I mean, the other thing I want to be careful with is that, um, and, you know, this takes us all the way into the era of hip hop. I mean, there is, there's, there's a complicated and really unfortunate, deeply unfortunate history of anti-Semitism that, you know, is rooted in a kind of hostility towards the, what were oftentimes um, Jewish record label owners. Um, and that's, you know, it's, <laughs> we want to be really careful with that. I want to be careful with that because, well, you know, the record where the recording industry was dominated by, and, and this is true of the larger history of, you know, um, 20th century entertainment, you know, so many Jewish men and not women again, so, you know, who succeeded in the entertainment industry and part of their, their, um, you know, their, their immigrant, immigrant trajectory towards um, assimilation and success in, 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 in the context of racial capitalism. But there were also a number of, of allies, right? Yeah. Who, who were just extraordinary figures and who felt an affinity, you know, of course, towards black music that, was you know deeply charged and problematic going back to somebody like Al Jolson, um, but who on the other hand you know say for instance somebody like a Jerry Wexler um, who is you know really just pivotal and transformative figure in Aretha Franklin's career when she signs on to Atlantic Records um, and you know the, changes the face of pop music history in the late '60s um, or the Chess Brothers who were all along the access of complicated. I mean, uh, the, the black feminist, um, uh, filmmaker, um, oh my gosh. Ooh, I mean, this is my age is going to cap me out on this. Um, D what is D's like? Not D Rees who made Bessie, but she made Cadillac records. Um, and that, you know, was one of Beyonce's, um, starring roles as Etta James. And I think that's an important narrative where you see, you know, you see the different, kinds of power inequities, but also the kinds of complicated alliances that are forged between white male record label owners and the black musicians whose labor, you know, was expropriated and commodified. It's just, it's not, it's, it's not a neat story at all. Um, so I'm holding on to the, to the word villains because when they were villainous, they were really villainous <laughs> and they weren't just the label owners. That's the, that's the thing that's part of the story that never gets told is that the critics were villainous too. And we don't pay attention to the critics because they're supposed to be invisible, but they're invisible hand with regards to taste making, right. And informing the institutions that then decide like who should get nominated for a Grammy or who should be inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame. And we, we might want to note that this is the most historic week in rock hall nomination history. We have more women and black women on the ballot than ever before. And that's not a coincidence given the way 2020 unfolded, but, but that, that, that there are other lines of villainy in the culture industry that I wanted to really pay attention to and other lines of white supremacy. So long sidebar, but I wanted to flag that. <laughs> no, thanks. Thanks so much for saying that. I couldn't agree more. And yeah, the invisible hands of tastemaking, the way you put that is so, um, yeah, it's so telling of the things that kind of need to be uncovered, all of the interconnections between different uh, controlling interests. Um, so uh Moving on to the next uh, chapter, which is, love the title of this chapter, 
thrice militant music criticism, Ellen Willis and Lorraine Hansberry's What Might Be. How do you put these two in conversation with each other? And what um, does it mean for the interpenetration of rock music criticism and Black radical thought? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that, Amanda. Um, you know, in, in earlier drafts of the book, I did have especially my Black feminist interlocutors who were like, why should I care about rock music criticism? You know, I'm a Black feminist. I don't care. They're like, well, you know, is it, I had that question, like, is this just about my own weird story that I've now given you, of, you know, going to Tower Records the same time I was reading like the Bluest Eye and Sula? It's like, I think there's something more here to this. And and so these two figures became a way of trying to tell the story of what more is there to say about the relationship behind, um, between not just Black feminist thought, but Black, black radical tradition thought um, and popular music criticism. And the thing about Ellen Willis is she was white Jewish New Yorker, as I mentioned earlier. She um, went to Barnard in the early 60s and then becomes the first um, pop music critic of the New Yorker magazine. And she writes, you know, some of the most important um, and influential essays about rock music culture in the early, in the late sixties and early seventies before she transitions into just going all in on um, writing radical, uh, radical feminist thought and engaging with theories of pleasure and uh, Marxist feminist theory as it relates to popular music culture. So she kind of pivoted out of being a music journalist and being um, a more firmly rooted kind of uh, theoretician of um, the politics of uh, radical feminist thought. The thing about Ellen Willis is that she wrote almost exclusively about white male musicians. I mean, not even, she didn't write about women that often. She wrote about Janis Joplin very famously um, and a few other women musicians, but she, she was very self-consciously aware of the fact that she just loved the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan and was trying to really dissect her own kind of, you know, let's use that word again, intimacies with, with rock and roll and rock and roll as it was performed by white male musicians. Nobody knew um, unless they dug in her archive. And I, I happened to have the privilege of being able to be one of the early visitors to her archive when it was first donated to the Schlesinger Library um, at the Radcliffe at Harvard University. While I was a fellow at the Radcliffe, this was in like 2010, 2011, right after she had passed away, and um, there was a big conference or in the years after she passed away. So there was a big conference on Ellen Willis. And I visited the archive um, because I was asked to speak about her. And one of the first um, clippings that I found in her early life files was that when she was an undergrad at Barnard, she had interviewed Ellen Willis when she was, or I'm sorry, she'd interviewed Lorraine Hansberry when she was an intern at Mademoiselle Magazine one summer. And um, all of the student interns had been asked to identify, um, you know, a person of some cultural import with whom they'd like to hitch their wagons, so to speak, right? So somebody who leads them forward. I know. And so Ellen Willis chose Lorraine Hansberry. She was the only 
intern, as far as I could tell from the archival material, who chose a black person, let alone a black woman. And this was, you know, right in the run of Lorraine Hansberry's just, you know, global fame as um, the playwright who gave us A Raisin in the Sun, which, you know, becomes this enormous Broadway breakthrough, wins unprecedented accolades um, for a play um, um, written by a black woman. Um, and the thing about Hansberry that, you know, we're in this moment of Hansberry studies, which is thrilling from thrilling from Amani Perry's important breakthrough biography to we've got this month, um, Suika um, Colbert, um, um, professor and dean at Georgetown and mammoth scholar of black performance studies has um, uh, uh, has a biography about Hansberry in relation, especially to her her intellectual work as a dramatist that's coming out. Rod Ferguson um, has written about her um, in brilliant ways as a Marxist theorist. And, um, and then there, of course, there's this kind of recuperation of her, her queer, um, her queer iconicity. So this is a, a Hansberry moment. Um, what I wanted to do in the book was show the ways that Hansberry as, you know, this breakthrough of black public intellectual alongside her BFF, James Baldwin, was especially interested in cultural criticism and also pleasure. And this is something that you and I talked about off air, Amanda, before the program started, but um, the extent to which people have talked to me about the pleasure of reading my book, which is just a a lovely thing for people to say. And if anything is, uh, lets me know that I'm hopefully honoring the legacies of Hansberry and others in this book, because Hansberry really believed that, um, you know, culture was a site of radical pleasure for black women and for queer folk more broadly um, and, and women more broadly, but for black women in particular. And to be able to think about how radical pleasure was for Hansberry as a site of cultural criticism and what Willis thought about the radical potential of rock and roll was something that I wanted to to experiment with seeing how those conversations melded together together give us what we might call thrice militant music criticism, which is a formulation taken from a line from Lorraine Hansberry's. But the other quick thing I'll say about this is that I also felt very committed to, and this goes back to the skepticism of some of my loving skepticism of some of my black feminist colleagues about why are you doing this? Is I wanted to um, take rock, rock criticism wanted to take it back from the white boys who claimed to invent it. So I wanted to interpolate black radical thought into our approach to writing about modern popular music culture, um, the kind of black radical thought that Lorraine Hansberry gave us, because that culture is drenched in, is steeped in, extends, in my opinion, from 1619, from the moment the boat touched the soil. And so I felt that it was so crucial to be able to show the ways that Hansberry um, was a force that was not fully realized in Ellen Willis's writing. But the fact that they crossed paths is what the late great queer theorist and dear friend and interlocutor of mine, Jose Munoz, would call a kind of kernel of utopian possibility for what lies in the future, right? So maybe that connection can lead to the kind of criticism that Hansberry longed for and that Willis could not quite completely actuate even in her own genius body of work. 
And, and and that right there in those moments when reading this book is when I learned so much uh, from you um, and and just experience, as we were talking about earlier, just the joy of you doing this work, the joy that uh, that I get from reading the arguments that you're making and the way that you're, you know, reading this letter between these two or this this. Um, yeah, this kernel of utopia <laughs> between these two women um, is something tremendously um, profound. Um, the and and just building off of this this kind of work that you're doing, uh, the next the next few chapters critique the limits of the blues archive and the larger crisis of archival lost loss when it comes to Black feminist artists, um, and. Uh, I'm wondering what you make of the mythologies that emerge from the two uh, the two uh, artists who you discuss, uh, Jishi Wiley and L.V. Thomas, um, and the attendant subculture, because uh, you also read the subculture um, that preoccupied critics and collectors mm-hmm. fashioned around them. Yep, yep. No, thank you for that. Um, you know, first I want to say up front, there's a there's a scholar, an independent scholar. He's he's a part of the narrative in this book. Well, there are two that are really important to the story. Um, the first is Grail Marcus, who is one of the godfathers of rock music criticism. He was, you know, a part of the original staff of Rolling Stone magazine and, um, you know, has gone on to write some of the most influential and most famous books about rock music history. Um, and he's also, he's a friend and a mentor to me. And weirdly, we grew up in the same town. We both grew up in Menlo Park. I mean, Grail is, you know, a generation ahead of me. Grew up in Menlo Park, both went to Berkeley. I mean, it's just like a very funny co-mingling of, you know, histories in our own lives. And he became, he was one of the first um, scholars to write in a contemporary context. So at the dawn of the 21st century about Gishi Wiley and Alvy Thomas, these two, you know, putatively mysterious blues women musicians who recorded a really limited number of um, songs in uh, 1930 um, for the once most influential race records label um, Paramount Records. And so, and one song in particular, Last Kind Word Blues, it's a song that Crowell wrote about very, very beautifully and for long periods of time has gone back to the story of that music and what we know and what we, don't, what we don't know about these musicians. We don't know a lot. We did not know a lot. The other critic who actually ended up kind of taking on the charge of trying to know more about them was John Jeremiah Sullivan, who is um, an independent scholar and critic, um, really writes beautifully about um, the history of the blues and wrote this very, very famous um, New York Times Magazine cover story in 2014 on Gishi Wiley and Alvy Thomas. And you know, it was literally, I think the subtitle is like, you know, on the trail, you know, so to speak, you know, the, the hunt for these women. It's not hunt, he doesn't use in that formulation, but the idea of, of hunting and looking and searching for who these women were is central to his narrative. And he did some real crackerjack research in terms of being able to recuperate these archival traces of them um, that you know, tell, let us know more about what we, of course, had to assume about Black women's life in the Jim Crow era. The phenomenal, influential um, Black feminist historian Sarah Haley tells us so much about this era anyways, around the carceral state in relation to Black women's lives. Um, Sarah, actually, when I was first working on this um, part of the book, 
heard me sharing it um, at UCLA, my other alma mater, and um, where she's based. And um, we both realized that Rosetta Wright's Jailhouse Blues collection had been important to us in our research. Sarah was the first person that I'd met other than Hazel Carby, who actually was the first person, I should say, who shared with me Rosetta Wright's records, which we have a collection here at Yale because of Hazel. But Sarah was the first person who knew who who Rosetta was other than Hazel for me. And that was just thrilling. And her work is about, you know, this history of violence in black women's lives in the early 20th century. And so I really wanted to take seriously inside B and in the chapters on Gishi Wiley and LV Thomas, the extent to which the stories told about Gishi Wiley and LV Thomas by the critics and by the record collectors um, man, um, manifested, or let's say they, they, they came to represent a kind of unaccounted history of violence done to them intellectually. And what I mean by that, and I don't mean that necessarily with regards to Grail and John, I want to be careful with that because they're important figures in this story. They actually figure into my sort of intimate conversations with them about the music and about this, this photograph, photograph that they thought was, you know, would represent a Geishi Wiley and Alfie Thomas, but it turned out not to be them. So there's a whole story behind that. But I wanted to kind of look at the generations of collectors who were obsessed with them and who in not addressing the history that Sarah gives us, you know, we're doing more violence to their legacy and that, you know, the kind of, um, disproportionate emphasis on finding out the details of their lives did not take into consideration the very structures, structures of violence that made it such that we don't have access to their lives, you know? And, I mean, my colleague, Jack Halberstam, the, you know, landmark, influential queer theorist, um, very early on said to me, and this is true of my other dear, dear close interlocutors, Kara Keeling and Jackie Stewart, two phenomenal black feminist scholars who I'm very close to, and we have a writing group together, but they all were like, you know, we do have to pay attention to whether or not these women even want to be found, you know? Maybe, maybe part of like being able to escape the violence of the state, right, is to do that, you know, fugitive work that is so important to black radical existences, which is to, you know, to be able to thrive on, on lower frequencies in response to the violence subjugated on black bodies. So, so that's the story that I wanted to try and tell in that part of the book. Um, and we have to talk about the uh, the next chapter as well. The one entitled "If You Should Lose Me" of trunks and record shops and black girl ephemera. Uh, I have a deep affection for this chapter. It was one of my favorite ones. Uh, you center the sociality of black girlhood and black womanhood um, as a way to read uh, sort of these lapses that we're talking about um, in in the archive. Um, can you share more about this and how Black women fans carry both the, bri- the vibrancy and the legacy of Black women's sound labor uh, through their kind of loving listening and, uh, you know, to the, to the music? Yeah, no, thank you for that. So these were the listeners who recognized the value in the music and affirmed its lasting power when others didn't, right? Um, a lot of this chapter 
started to come together around trying to just experiment with and rehearse with other ways of trying to tell the story of black women and girls relationship to the blues that was not limited to the kind of tales of iconicity, which have been very important to how we, you know, come to, to know and recognize the importance of Bessie and all the other sisters around her, but to, to remember, right. That it was the sisters who were, you know, on the front lines of loving them and buying that music. My colleague, Elijah Wald, you know, has affirmed with me as we've talked about this, especially over the past year, how we know, and Angela Davis says this in her book, we know that even though black men love this music as well, that's important, that's crucial, that the topics, you know, in the music itself speak to a kind of, you know, to black women's life worlds and, and black girls' life worlds. If you think of like Bessie Smith's Young Girl, young, young Gal Blues, which, you know, is very much kind of parallel to the story that Toni Morrison is telling in jazz of like, uh, um, you know, a sensuous awakening of selfhood. I mean, we see that in Zora and there the I was watching God too. So I wanted to try to account for that history and quite fortuitously, my majestic uh, nine, now 94 year old mother, Juanita Brooks um, in the Bay area. Um, she was turning 90 and having, you know, a big soiree that we put on for her in Palo Alto and of course, as the academic in the family, which is true for all academics, I was I was told by my siblings that you're doing mom's oral history, which was an honor and a privilege. And in those conversations, we ended up talking about her going to the record store in Jim Crow, Texarkana. And that just lit up my brain in a way that was so exhilarating and you know, reminded me that there the 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 scratches in the records that those white male corrector collectors were you know, so obsessed with, you know, acquiring those records and owning them. Right. But those scratches were made by, you know, women and girls like my mom and, you know, from playing those records over and over again and loving them. And um, I wanted to be able to tell that story. And I'll just also flag that I was so stunned and moved by the fact that this new film relatively new came out at Christmas time, late 2019 uh, Sylvie's love the stars, Tessa Thompson, um, it's, it's just, it's the first time it's, you know, I've ever seen this on film. It's a great example of this kind of secret expressive language of desire and imagination between, um, Tessa Thompson's character and Asian Nicole King, Naomi King, Asian Naomi King, I think it is right from, uh, how to get away with murder. Um, I hope that's her full name. She's a wonderful actress. Um, there are these two intimates two you know, best friends who have these, moments where music for them captures, you know, all of their hopes and desires and, you know, ways of being in the world. It's kind of amounts to a sociopolitical and intimate common sense for them. But the other incredible thing of the film is that her father owns a record store. And this is like the late fifties and early sixties, Tessa Thompson's character. So, you know, some of our first images of her are in a record store and, and, you know, having a deep kind of knowledge of, the, the, the music in the store and finding pleasure and dancing around the store. And I thought, well, well, there it is, there it is. And mm -hmm. um, this is mm -hmm. a history that I hope we can continue to keep digging into because it's a powerful one. Indeed. Indeed. It, it took me back to, yeah, the days when I used to go to my neighborhood record shop and, and get records. Uh, even though the last I didn't have any of that. Amanda. 
it's dying out, you know? So Yeah. We had a record player, but the shop also had CDs, so I actually got a lot of CDs too. But it was the first place I encountered, you know, like Lauren Hill and, and other fantastic uh, women performers and singers. Um, so moving us, yeah, moving us towards the 21st century, towards the avant-garde, um, you uh, look at how Black feminist avant-garde artists um uh, you look at the ways that they create trans-temporal ensembles in, uh, that are in dialogue with this larger palimpsest of Black feminist sound, and uh, um, that uh, their works move us toward a future. They move us toward a new, new age. Can you tell us about who uh, a few of these people are and how you appraise their works? Sure. Yeah. So important again, right, to end with these women rather than to let the men have the last say or the story of the men to be the last say in the book. And so I focus on the roots musician, Rihanna Giddens, the, you know, indie folk rock, um, you know, Afro everything, (laughs) I want to say Afrofuturist kind of folky, um, Valerie June and, um, the phenomenal, you know, jazz genius, greatest vocalist in jazz of the past quarter century, um, Cecile McClure and Sylvant. Um, all three of them are critical fabulationists in some ways, right? They all are kind of um, emerge as archivists. I mean, they literally um, deal with archives. Um, Rhiannon, you know, has crafted songs around, um, you know, the, the traces of letters, uh, you know, written by um, slave owners um, about their, um, you know, angst around, you know, the end of the Civil War um, and trying to fill in the gaps of, you know, the Black presence in, the, in those in those texts to um, Valerie June, who uh, has such a close affinity to musicians who are not known, especially black women musicians who were blues musicians and, and really listening to their archival materials, recordings of interviews and crafting them into her own repertoire. She also, you know, has championed a lot of iconic blues musicians like Lead Belly um, in her work and through public events. And then Cecile, who, you know, just digs so deeply into the history of popular music culture through very um, obscure and charged material, um, you know, be it primitivist songs um, by the likes of jazz musicians like Valida Snow, who was an incredible um, jazz instrumentalist sister, you know, who played along the axis of Afro-modernist primitivisms. And Cecile picks up covering her music or Burt Williams' music, but also um, uh, Jelly Roll Morton's 30-minute um, absolutely profane queer prison song, um, a murder ballad. So these are all figures who are kind of handling the archive, right. And becoming the archive. And that's the argument that I would have made. They're archivists and their archives in themselves of historical memory. And they see a kind of ethical charge in being able to document that history and, and serve as the, the, the archival sites of our, cultural and collective memories and desires. And this is important to remember for Black peoples who historically, of course, have been denied institutional 
memory of any kind. You know, we think of, you know, the recent um, um, opening of the the Blacksonian, as we call it on the mall, and the fact that um, that kind of effort and privilege and access to resources to be able to document our own history has always been a struggle. And so Black sonic feminists, you know, have taken up that charge across time. It's an argument that I make across the book, but we see it right now in the 21st century. And so they were three figures who were absolutely central to that story. And then, of course, as I mentioned much earlier, um, Beyonce's Lemonade is really a monumental example of that kind of effort as well. Yes. Um, and and um, I think that uh, this chapter will lead any like listener, any fan to just um, it, it just opens up the music um, and it allows people to have an even deeper engagement uh, with with the music uh, from reading from reading the chapter. So thank you for that. Um, well, um, I have one more question before we go. Uh, would you like to share what you are working on now with our audiences? Sure. So, um, you know, I mentioned how this book got divided up. And so one thing I can say is that there's a, a breakout standalone Black feminist critical history of the American opera musical Porgy and Bess um, and the Black woman geniuses involved in various productions of that show for nearly a century. It, it initially was the end of liner notes, and then we had to lop it off, and that made sense to do that. Um, and I'm very excited about that. It's something I've been thinking about for almost a decade and working on. So that's a, that's a whole other thing. Um, and then there are two kind of follow-up volumes that I hope will see the light of day to, to liner notes, the follow-up to liner notes. Um, one is tentatively called um, Nobody or a Nation, Black Women, Black Women Musicians in the Mid-Century Making of Sonic Citizenship. Um, which explores how mid-20th century Black women, women musicians like Eartha Kidd and Nina Simone and Etta James, Tina Turner, The Supremes, Rest in Peace, Mary Wilson, um, how these artists engage questions of democracy, privacy, um, and Blackness in the public sphere, sphere, and also how we think about their kind of geopolitical, Afro-cosmopolitan lives um, in, in their music, um, beginning with the end of the Second World War through the early 1970s. Um, and then the final volume, if you know, we'll just have to see how this goes, is tentatively called All That You Can't Leave Behind, um, Postmodern Sound, New Black Feminisms and New Black Feminisms and um, the Third Reconstruction. And that one focuses on foundational theories of modern black feminisms, the sexual revolution, black liberation ideologies from the late sixties to the present. The Knoll sisters are the stars of that volume. Um, but of course other folks like Lizzo and Chanel will probably pop up again in that and Megan, a re-re, you know, it's the contemporary um, kind of final meditation on this topic. Well, I cannot wait to get my hands on the next two volumes. Uh, you had already given us so much in this one. Um, and and the, the new projects, uh, the ones that follow sound um, just is equally um, exciting. So I want to thank you so much for being on the show today and for speaking with us about Liner Notes for the Revolution, the Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. Thank you so much, Amanda. It's been such a pleasure.